You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight brings us again to Hebrews, the 10th chapter, where all things are greater and better in Christ. Tonight we have a lesson in the 10th chapter, uh, particularly about the uh, greater sacrifice of Christ, the greatest sacrifice uh, that there was, that uh, a sacrifice not just in equal to man, unlike those of bulls and goats and heifers and all of those things, but sacrifice truly uh, beyond any of us, uh, sacrifice of more worth than all of us together, I think we might clearly be able to say, as uh, there came one to bear the sins of the world, and one who was capable uh, to do it and who could do it effectively. And so what we find is we're, we're nearing the end of uh, the great arguments in the book of Hebrews. We've had Christ greater than the angels, his comparison to humanity, and of course uh, he comes off looking pretty good in that comparison uh, is, is, uh, compared to us, uh, greater than the great servant of God, Moses, who was the great deliverer and the lawgiver, the, the one who brought the people uh, out of slavery. Well, uh, Christ even more so, bringing us from the slavery of sin. Uh, then a uh, comparison of priesthoods, the uh, priesthood uh, that was under the law via Levi and Aaron, uh, that priesthood which God established and set up and that uh, worked in, in certainly a holy place is surpassed by uh, the greater priesthood and mediation of Christ, who works in a holier place and offered, you know, tonight as we'll see, better sacrifice. So better promises, uh, better mediation, better ministry. And tonight, in many ways, uh, the conclusion of that set of arguments. And then we're going to go to some exhortations, exhortations to faithfulness and fidelity, the danger of refusing that which God has offered, and then uh, the example of the faithful, maybe one of the most famous passages in Hebrews, uh, but capped with the example of Jesus, final exhortations uh, then to follow. So we're really, in a lot of ways, uh, coming to uh, a conclusion of the main things that Hebrews is bringing to us, but we'll have a lot of application of those things yet to come. All right, so in chapter uh, 10, then, uh, we're going to have the great sacrifice, the great sacrifice of Christ himself. We've already seen a number of times, of course, these folks are Christians, they're familiar uh, with this, but we uh, think about where we ended last time, and last time we read this conclusion, that uh, if we contrast the old system and the new, uh, into the old system, you had a high priest chosen uh, by his descent from Levi, and then from Aaron, who was without physical defect, who went once a year to a holy place where he alone could go and could not stay to bring a sacrifice first for himself and then for the people, and then he would leave again until next year's return to do it again. As compared that to, in contrast with Christ, who left heaven, who offered himself once for all and took that sacrifice of himself and uh, took himself back to heaven, which was his former and now his continual home, where he now stays forever at the right hand of the Father, 
bringing many sons to glory, making the way, and inviting in all of those who have faith in him. So in the uh, end of the ninth chapter, uh, chapter 9 and verse 24, we had this, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And in verse 26, the second part, now once at the consummation of the ages, he's been made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he appears now in heaven in the presence of God for us because he made a sacrifice of himself, putting away sin for us. And so in chapter 10 now, uh, we expand upon that and we continue with that. Uh, and so uh, let us turn now and uh, read uh, the 10th uh, chapter of the book of Hebrews, the first 18 verses. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it's written of me, to do your will, O God. For saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind. I will write them, he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds. I'll remember no more. For where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So here we have this great promise uh, of God, uh, a full uh, atoning sacrifice in Christ. Uh, so tonight we're going to take this in four parts. Uh, we see in verses 1 through 4, the never working sacrifices, which uh, that's not really the uh, way you think about the sacrifices under the law, but it is the gospel explanation of them. 
the never working sacrifice. The four parts of which will take uh, this section of chapter 10. First, the never working sacrifices, which again is not how we would probably have thought of uh, these sacrifices if we lived under the law, but uh, by the time it came toward the end of it, uh, uh, especially with uh, what's pointed out in Christ, we'd have to say, yeah, I guess that's right. Uh, we have then the obedient sacrifice prophesied. And that's a big point in the prophecy. There's two parts there. The fact that this was planned, it's not a usurpation. It's not a change unexpected. It's not Christians deciding to do a thing different than the Jews. It's God's will, and he said so. And in their songbook, they'd been singing about it in Psalm 40. But also that this sacrifice was prepared and was obediently following God. Again, the will of God to cause this sacrifice. And then we see that contrast that's made between the priests who stand ministering and Christ who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And so would you rather be under the priesthood that has to be standing and repeating their work all the time and uh, never uh, having a year off, never having a break? Or would you rather be uh, with the ministry of Christ where he sits, because he's done, at the right hand of God? And then there's a quotation of the same uh, prophecy from uh, Jeremiah 31 of uh, chapter 8, where we have that promise of full forgiveness brought up again to end the argument. So here's the arguments. Verses 1 to 4, the never working sacrifices. The law, because it was a shadow of the good to come, it, it, it showed in types, in figures, in various ways it presaged what was coming, those Old Testament sacrifices were a very good thing. If you lived under the law, you were glad they were offered. You were glad God had made such provision. But we've already found that uh, they were a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That's chapter 8, verse 5. We've seen that uh, it's a symbol for the present time. Uh, that was chapter uh, 9 and verse 9. And again, they were copies of the things in heaven in nine twenty-three. Uh, they weren't the thing, but they were an indication of the thing. The real thing is the throne of God in heaven, the great temple where God resides permanently, where through Christ we may one day hope to go. Well, they had a temple that was a copy of that, and it could never, it says, make perfect with those things which they did year by year. Could never make perfect. We've already seen in chapter 7, that uh, the former commandment was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. That was 7, 18, and 19. And we've also seen uh, in chapter 9, verse 9, the gifts and sacrifices offered cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience because they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. And so these were a temporary thing. Now, they were there for basically a millennia and a half. Uh, they took a few years off in the Babylonian captivity when God said, I can't put up with y'all no more. We need to have a little bit of a purification, then I'll bring you back and we'll try again. And then a second time, God says, okay, that's enough. And so Christ came and made the effective atoning sacrifice. But these could never work. And one thing it mentions here in verse 2 is just by the repetition, it shows they couldn't work because if you actually got them cleansed, couldn't you quit? But you could never get them cleansed in conscience, or otherwise they would have been ceased to be offered, because the worshiper, having been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. So in some way, this priestly work 
was sort of like visiting your spiritual mechanic. Now, I try to like uh, and, and to have as long a time as possible in between trips to my mechanic, right? I like him to fix it once, and then we go on about our business as though it never happened, as though uh, you know it didn't break and didn't need to be fixed. But if uh, my car lives at the mechanic shop, then you know I've got a problem with that car. And so in some ways, in the same sense, them with their continual year-by-year year, uh, sacrifices, as verse 3 says, those same sacrifices in them year-by-year year is a reminder of sin. They're just being reminded of, of how bad this is. It really isn't taking care of the problem. And so, uh, okay, hey, it's David Tolman. Let's go again. Oh, man, didn't we do that already? Yeah, we did. And so, well, why are we here again? Because it didn't really take care of the problem. And so there was this reminder of sins. For it is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, yeah, these were important things. They were helpful things. They were a picture of the full forgiveness that was coming. Uh, they made possible a fellowship with God until that full uh, atoning sacrifice uh, came, but they couldn't take away sin. And so one thing we'll find is the next section will tell us that we're going to have an obedient sacrifice. We have a willing sacrifice, uh, which these animals could never do because they don't have a will. They can't be obedient in that uh, sense. What we're going to need is for the sins of people, we're going to need a person. And the problem with the, the being a sacrifice for other sins is that, well, the uh, Old Testament system made provision for the high priest to make atonement for himself and then the sins of the people. And if one was going to be a sacrifice for the sins of others, what would they do about their own sin? Once you've offered a sacrifice for your own sin, in this sense, how are you going to do any more? So we need one who doesn't need to make a sacrifice for their own sin. But we certainly see that God had predicted that there was going to be a person come and bear the sins of the people. Uh, this is Isaiah 53. Now, I know that the psalmist would, is going to quote Psalm 40. But think about this as, as how God had told them long ago. Such a thing was coming. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So we thought God was going after him. Uh, we thought God forsook him, but turns out that wasn't the case. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we're healed. Now, there have been times when people have been punished for the sins of others, but that does them in. It doesn't heal the other people, right? It, it, it might deflect uh, from them, or it might let them escape a bit, but it doesn't cause them to be healed. His scourging is for our healing. His crushing was for our iniquity. And his crushing was for his piercing was for our transgression. So it was for transgression. It was for iniquity. And for us, it was healing. 
for all of us is why we need it. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. So here is, uh, you know, the the one who in the Old Testament had the uh, goat role of the scapegoat, right? The the sins were put on the uh, uh, scapegoat, and he was sent out. Well, here the iniquity of us all fell on him. So it says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before its shear. So there's the Lamb of God. He did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He's taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke was due. So there again, it was for the transgression of the people. He is the sin bearer. His grave then was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. So he is the guilt offering. So here is the sin bearer, the guilt offering, the one who's there for transgression and iniquity, the one who bears the sins of the people. And so, no, the, the bulls and goats and their life, which represented by their blood, the blood of bulls and goats, their lives could not bear the sins of people. It could temporarily, in a copy, in a shadow, in a figure, in showing uh, the importance of sacrifice, the importance of sin, uh, a temporary uh, fellowship with God until the real price was paid, it could do that, but it couldn't really bear up under the sins of all the people, much less all the sins of all the people of all time. But there was one uh, in whose life could stand to bear all the iniquity of all the people of forever. And you just think, what are the iniquities in the world today, right? Uh, June 2nd, 2022, what are the sins of the seven, seven and a half billion of us who are on the planet today? I, I couldn't count them. I couldn't know them. I can't know all the sins on the street today, right? I, I can barely get a grip and have some estimation of the sins within my own heart today. Just me, much less all of you. And mercy, how long would the confession line be if I had to do the sins of everybody today? But here is the one who takes for to. Uh, takes today's sin and yesterday's sin and tomorrow's sin for me and for you and for everybody on the street, for everybody in town, for everybody in all the countries we've ever got, for all of the seven and a half billion today and again tomorrow and all the hosts that live before and all the hosts that live hereafter. Here's the one who would take away the sin. How long a line of bulls and goats would you even need to start? Well, they couldn't do it but he can. So therefore, verse five, here is the obedient sacrifice that is prophesied. I read of its prophecy from Isaiah 53. Here is its, its prophecy from Isaiah 40, or excuse me, Psalm 40, the 40th Psalm and verse six. So yes, they had been singing this in their hymnals, well, Psalters. They'd been singing this in their Psalter. They'd been singing this in their hymn book. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, 
but a body you have prepared for me. So this follows exactly uh, the line uh, of prophecy in the Septuagint version. It reads slightly different uh, than the Masoretic text, the the Hebrew text, uh, which speaks about uh, ears, uh, talking about the uh, having ears that are open uh, to God. Here uh, in the Septuagint, it, it's the whole body, uh, which is a more fitting figure, but also it's just a quote from the Septuagint. So here is one who is uh, prepared in his body to do this. In whole offerings and sacrifices, you've taken no pleasure, uh, but I've come to do your will, O God. So the one who bears the sins of the world is one who came to be obedient. And wasn't it always true that God preferred obedience to sacrifice, right? Even in the halting obedience that we give and the partial obedience that we give, in the obedience that we give uh, from time to time as we ought to all the time, uh, but the, the, the obedience that keeps us from sin is much preferred by God than the sacrifice that might be offered after. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel, the prophet and judge, says to Saul, the disobedient king, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So God says, I prefer you do what I say instead of thinking, well, I'll just offer a sacrifice after. And so obedience is preferable to sacrifice. Hosea 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Micah asks, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the Lord on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in, a thou in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So Micah says, I, I can't offer enough sacrifice. And I certainly, you know, what, what, what would I offer a human sacrifice? Well, he, he recognizes that these sacrifices of rams and, and oil, these are inadequate, but even a sacrifice of another person just like us, that would be inadequate. And actually, you know, there, we'd, by killing another, we'd just be adding sin upon sin. But he says, and this really uh, is the entire ethical view of the New Testament, uh, in prophecy by uh, Micah, Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what's good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's, that's what we're asked to do. Walk faithfully before God. And these things that are asked to have justice, kindness, and humility, well, whoever did them more than Christ. The perfect example in all of these things, in every day of his life. So the prophecy of the Psalms continues. Behold, I've come, and the scroll of the book is written to me to do your will, O God. So it's prophesied that Jesus would be obedient. And we think about how many places that's true. It's interesting. Uh, here are the Psalms, which is normally the, you know, the scrolls we turn to. In the Psalms, it says, in the scrolls it's written to me, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to do your will, O God. And, well, he did. And we can turn to prophecy after prophecy. 
And so now, verse 8, it applies it after saying sacrifices and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices you've not desired, nor have I taken pleasure in, in them. And then the author explains, which are offered according to the law. So just so you're, so you're sure, it's the sacrifices of the law. God says, that's what I'm not fully satisfied with. That's what's not getting the job done. It is the things of the law explained by the Hebrew writer. So instead, verse 9, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. So it's this willful following. It's this obedient following that makes him the sacrifice that does accomplish God's will, that does for us bring salvation. And so he takes away the first, the copy, the shadow, the ineffectual, to bring the second, which is the permanent, abiding, effectual, the one that really brings forgiveness. For by this will, this intentional obedience, this active obedience here of Christ in doing these things, by this will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And so we need that that will permanently help us can completely cleanse us, can give us all the blessings. And so it's a once for all. Now, obviously, there is no need for then a continuing sacrifice, right? It is a thing like the gospel of Jude 3. It's once for all delivered. The sacrifice is once for all time done. And so now Jesus can sit at the right hand of God. So we have this contrast now between the standing and repeating of the Old Testament priest, which is a very intentional Contrast here between standing and sitting and the sitting of Christ. Every priest, verse 11, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. So that's the summary of all the things he said before. He's argued up to that point, and they are always there. They are standing all the time. They're doing their sacrifices all the time, but they cannot take away sin. But he, in contrast, having one uh, offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So back in chapter 9, through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And he sat down at the right hand of God. That was quoted back in chapter 1 and verse 13. And the original quote is from, again, the Psalms, Psalm 110, a a messianic psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. So the Levitical priests had to keep working. They had to keep sacrificing. Jesus, like the Father at the end of the creation week, you know, God created for six days. On the seventh, he rested. Why did he rest? Because he was tired? No, he rested because he was done, right? He rested when he was done. Jesus had made this one time for all time sacrifice, and now he sits down. Why didn't he have to stand and minister anymore? Because he's done. The work is done. It is finished. It is a completed work of Christ. And so Christ has finished and done his work, and now he sits by God in the throne 
of heaven. And so, the, again, this he sat down. This is intentional and repeated in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the famous exhortation of chapter 12, to fix your eyes upon Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of faith, uh, our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, he has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So three times through the book, we get Jesus sat down. And we think about it's an intentional and repeated contrast uh, between those uh, priests of of, uh, the law who never sat, right? Of all the furnishings back in chapter 9 in the temple, right? There's a place for the showbread to be placed. There's a place for the candles uh, uh, to be lit. There's a place for sacrifices to be made. There's a place uh, for all kinds of things. But one thing there's not is there not any chairs for the priest, right? They had no chairs in the temple, right? Only thing, only thing that's even closer related is that the, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat where you approach God. So they're the, the seat or center of mercy. But it ain't, it wasn't a seat for sitting, was it? So here's Christ sat down. And how long is he going to stay there? Well, God is going to rest uh, <coughs> uh, uh, from creation eternally because that work has been done and there's nothing else to do. Here, though, there is a time. There is a time span put on the uh, sitting of Christ uh, by the throne of God. It says, waiting from that time onward, until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Well, what's the last thing to be conquered? Death, right? Uh, we know that from First uh, Corinthians 15. So until uh, there's no more death, the Christ will be there at the throne of God. And so he will come back. He will get up one more time, as it were, and he'll come back. And what will he do? He'll usher in judgment and salvation. To, in its fullness, judgment to those who are not of faith in him, salvation in the fullness to those who are of faith in him, and that'll be the end of all things, including the end of death. And so he is sitting at the, at the throne uh, of God until it's time for him to rise and come back, right? And so he is there until the, all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Again, the last one of those being death. So, now, we have a, a recap. Uh, the Hebrew writer has gone through a lot of material, and he wants us to look back again at what he said in chapter 8 uh, from Jeremiah 31. So it says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, writes the Lord, I will write my laws upon their hearts, and on their minds I will write them, and their sins and lawless deeds I'll remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering of sin. And so the Hebrew writer reminds us by that quote, the two things here that are tied together. They had the obedient sacrifice of Christ, uh, which is the one that fully takes away sin, right? I will remember their lawless deeds no more. But in that obedient sacrifice of Christ, uh, what is asked of the people who follow him and what will be done for the people that follow him? They will have the law of God in their hearts and in their minds. And so we're saved by an obedient sacrifice, the obedient sacrifice of Christ, so that we can better and more fully serve him 
and we can have the law of God on our hearts and in our minds so that we can do what? Well, that we can imitate Christ in offering obedient faith. So we're saved by an obedient sacrifice, by the faithful acts of Christ, and now we're called to, uh, as his followers, have his law uh, in our hearts and our minds for us, having been fully forgiven of sin, to follow him faithfully and knowledgeably. And so the things of sin in Christ are taken care of. Verse 18 concluded, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's done in Christ. There's no need even to think about something else. Now, at this point, we're going to be encouraged then toward that faithful obedience ourselves. We're going to be asked to follow Christ in the next verses. We're going to be asked to assemble together. Uh, We're going to be asked to uh, avoid sin and follow a sanctified life. And we're going to have some applications of now the faithful life we're to have in light of the salvation we have by and through the faithful sacrifice. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.